0: Well, I first visited Fort Owen here in the Bitterroot Valley in 1960 when I was eight years old. My father was a University of Montana summer school history t- student. Uh, he was helping on an archaeological dig at the old fort. His crew dug for several weeks and succeeded only in unearthing the skeleton of an ancient cat. <laughs> Nevertheless, my father remained fascinated with Major John Owen, the founder of the fort, for the rest of his life, and he passed that interest on to me. John Owen established Fort Owen as a trading post in the fall of 1850, when the Bitterroot Valley was still part of Oregon territory. Major was not a military rank, but was used to indicate the authority Owen enjoyed as the founder, owner, and operator of Fort Owen. Through the 1850s, Fort Owen would remain an island of white settlement, surrounded in all directions by nearly pristine wilderness inhabited by native peoples. Fort Owen's trading post stocked an impressive variety of goods for sale, including powder, lead and percussion caps, coffee and tea, tobacco, calico cloth, pre-made clothing, and blankets for white customers only, liquor, when they could keep it in stock. Indian customers could purchase utilitarian goods and also ornamental supplies such as hawk bells, beads, and vermilion paint. In addition to the trading post, there was a grist mill, also a sawmill at Fort Owen. The fort had a thriving cattle herd, pigs and sheep, and it produced its own eggs, milk, and butter. During its prime in the 1850s and early 1860s, the gardens of Fort Owen produced many kinds of vegetables, There were fields of wheat, oats, and barley. The gardens and fields were so productive that in in addition to supplying the needs of the residents of the fort, there was enough extra food grown to sell. Fort Owen provided vegetables and flour to the Stevens Railroad Survey Expedition of 1853 and 54. And later, workers building the Mullen Road also benefited from the productivity of Fort Owen's gardens, fields, and herds. In the early 1860s, when a series of rich gold strikes brought thousands of eager miners to the area that became southeast Montana, food brought by wagon from Fort Owen helped to feed them too. Major Owen was renowned as a kind and compassionate man. The Major remembered his dog Bull's birthday in his journal. It was February 28th. Owen often also recorded in his journal the drinks he had taken. Sometimes there were quite a lot. And his handwriting got really bad, you can tell <laughs> Over a dozen years he traveled by one estimate 23,000 miles in the inland west. Usually with a train of pack animals, often in rough, rough mountains, often lost. In later years Jesuit father Lawrence Palladino described his friend John Owen. He said, Major Owen lived like a king. He was the ruler. He always had many guests at the fort and he was famed for his hospitality to his guests and to transient travelers who were passing through the region. He was a man of very kindly and generous character and the most esteemed pioneer in the country for years. He was esteemed and trusted by the Indians as well as by the whites. His word was always good. Now because it offered its clients credit, Major Owen's trading post functioned as a sort of a bank in the wilderness. An account holder could even make a cash draw at the trading post. Travelers could pick up or post their mail at Fort Owen. As well as being a trading post, Fort Owen was also a a cultural center of sorts. And Major Owen established a school at the fort to educate the children of its residents. And Major Owen's library, always available to visitors, was almost legendary in its day. And uh, my friend Ken will tell us about the Fort Owen library a a little later in the session. From 1856 until 1862, Major Owen held the unique position in addition to being a traitor, of serving as a special Indian agent to the Flathead tribe. For part of this time, he was the agent for the Upper Ponderé, Mountain Snake, and Bannock tribes as well. While he was resigned to the fact that eventually the Indians would be forced by white encroachment to give up their free-roaming ways, he vigorously asserted in letters to his superiors that his Indian charges should be treated with fairness and dignity. As agent, he forbade other settlers to sell liquor to the local Indians. John Owen was born in Pennsylvania on June 17, 1818. Relatively little is known of his life before he came west. In 1849, as a sutler, Owen accompanied the U.S. Regiment of Mounted Rifles west from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And a uh, sutler, as everybody knows, was a civilian provisioner attached to a military unit. Essentially, John Owen ran a mobile trading post for the benefit of the soldiers. Under the command of Brevet Colonel William Loring, the mounted rifles were bound for Oregon Territory on the Emigrant Road. Once in Oregon, Brevet Colonel Loring would take command of the military forces of the entire territory and the mounted rifles would establish the post that became Fort Dalles on the Columbia River. On their 1849 march, The Mounted Rifles went into winter quarters about five miles above Fort Hall, which was situated on the Snake River, close to the site of present-day Pocatello, Idaho. Fort Hall was, in 1849, a Hudson's Bay Company trading post. The Mounted Rifles quickly constructed a temporary winter shelter, which they named appropriately Quinton Loring. In a sketch written for the Montana Historical Society of Mont—let <coughs> me try it again—a sketch written for the Historical Society of Montana, which was published in 1896, Owen's longtime friend Judge Frank Woody described Owen's activities in 1850. Major Owen remained at Cantonment Loring until the, su- the troops—excuse re- me—until the troops resumed their march in the spring of 1850. When he relinquished his settlership and spent the summer on the emigrant road, trading with the emigrants bound for California and Oregon. In the fall of 1850, he came to the Bitterroot Valley, right here. Now we can't know for sure about John Owen's activities at Cantonment Loring over the winter of 1849 1850. But it's quite possible that during that winter, due to Quintoam and Loring's close proximity to the regional trading hub of Fort Hall, that Owen came into contact there with men who were very familiar with the country to the north and who told him about the Bitterroot Valley. The Fort Owen account book shows that eight men were employed by Major Owen at the time he founded the Fort Owen Trading Post. George F. Weissel's book, Men in Trade on the Northwest Frontier is a detailed examination of the Fort Owen account book. Dr. Weisel suggests that some or all of the men initially employed at the trading post came with Major Owen when he relocated from Cantonment-Loring to the Bitterroot Valley. And one of Owen's employees, Gabriel Prudhomme, is particularly interesting because he's known to have been in the inland northwest for many years and to have accompanied the flathead delegation that guided Father Desmet to the Bitterroot Valley in 1841. It's unfortunate that Gabriel Prudhomme's exact role in John Owen's migration to the Bitterroot Valley may never be known. On November 5, 1850, John Owen received a bill of sale from Father P.J. Josette for the purchase for $250 of St. Mary's Mission in the Bitterroot Valley and St. Mary's was just north of today's Stevensville, as everybody knows, and this became the site of Fort Owen. Under the leadership of Father Desmet, the Jesuits had founded St. Mary's mission in September of 1841 to serve the local Flathead Indians. This was the first white settlement in the area that would become the state of Montana. In the fall of 1850, the Jesuits had made the decision to close St. Mary's and to leave the valley. This decision resulted from a lack of funds and the fact that many of the flathead converts had become disenchanted with the Jesuits teachings. The danger of Blackfeet raids no doubt also contributed to the Jesuits decision to leave the Bitterroot. John Owen appeared in the Bitterroot Valley just as the Jesuits were preparing to close St. Mary's mission. Owen's Bill of Sale guaranteed the Jesuits the right to reclaim their fields, sawmill, and gristmill should they decide to return to the Bitterroot before January 1, 1852. St. Mary's Mission would not be reestablished until 1866, when building began on a piece of land a, ho- a half mile south of Fort Owen. With John Owen, when he came to the Bitterroot Valley, was his Shoshone common law wife, Nancy. In his journal, Owen says, I have been living pleasantly with my old wife since the fall of 49. Well, this was a time when he was still serving as a sutler at, at uh, Kenton and Loring. Nancy was evidently considerably older than Owen, but she was a tireless worker. She accompanied him on several of his trading expeditions, often doing the work of a man. They were deeply attached to each other, and in January of 1858, Major Owen signed a marriage contract with Nancy in the absence of anyone qualified to perform a service so that they might be provided for, she might be provided for, in the event that anything should happen to him. Now originally, Fort Owen consisted simply of the wooden buildings which had been left by the Jesuits, some of them surrounded by a log palisade. With two years of, within two years of the establishment of Fort Owen, Major Owen began replacing the original wooden buildings with ones of adobe brick, which was made on the site. In the late 1850s, Major Owen had his fort completely rebuilt of adobe brick. The entire fort was enclosed with a tall adobe wall. Owen had two imposing bastions constructed on the south facing fort. Face of the fort and uh, bastions quickly came to be used for storage rather than for the defense of the fort. Owen also rebuilt the gristmill and the sawmill of the Jesuits which stood some distance separate from the fort. Eventually a claim of almost a square mile of land surrounding the fort was substantiated for John Owen under the Donation Land Claim Act of 1850. This act of Congress allowed a man and his wife to each claim 320 acres of land in Oregon Territory if they'd been in residence there before December 1st of 1850. So John and Nancy Owen just got it under the wire on this one. For most of his time in the West, Major John Owen kept journals, which are today in the archives of the Montana Historical Society. A transcribed edition of the Major's journals and a hundred of his letters was published in limited edition in 1927. And that schematic map I showed you of Owen's travels was from that 1927 edition. The Ford Owen account book is also in the possession of the Montana Historical Society. According to Owen's journals, almost immediately after Fort Owen was established, he began to make epic trading trips around the northwest and beyond to secure merchandise and supplies for his trading post. On some of these trips, Major Owen followed sections of the route that would later become the Mullen Road, that is, west from Fort Owen by way of Cataldo Mission to Walla Walla, or northeast from Fort Owen, over what became Mullen Pass to Fort Benton. Major Owen also took other different routes on his trading trips and thoroughly explored the inland northwest. Owen usually used pack animals on these trips because the country was extremely steep and rocky with lots of deadfall. But occasionally he used oxen-drawn wagons, and I'll tell you about one of those wagon trips in just a few minutes. Because of the isolation of Fort Owen, Major Owen was very limited in his choice of establishments where he could trade for merchandise for his trading post. In addition to trading trips to Fort Benton and Walla Walla and other relatively nearby trading posts, Owen occasionally traveled as far as Fort Hall or even south to Salt Lake City to trade. Now the Dalles, 600 miles west of Fort Owen on the Columbia River, Right here, was his most us- usual destination to obtain trade goods. The U.S. Rifle Regiment had established an American military post at the Dalles in 1850, and trading establishments had quickly grown up around it. The Dalles was situated 200 miles upriver from the mouth of the Columbia above the Cascades. It's the first series of unnavigable rapids and falls on the Columbia. Because large, ocean-going sailing ships could dock as far up the Columbia as Portland, which was only 100 miles below the Dalles, traders at the Dalles could conveniently have merchandise and supplies transported upriver from these ships, although a portage around the Cascades was necessary. In 1853, the first steamboat was launched on the Columbia, above the Cascades, so that goods could be brought by steam power all the way to the Dalles with only one necessary portage at the Cascades, that is between a steamboat on the lower river and one on the river above the Dalles. Starting in 1855, Major Owen also made frequent trips to Fort Benton, although the first steamboat would not make it all the way into Fort Benton until the summer of 1860. In September of 1855, Owen left his fort bound for Fort Benton with a pack train of 15 animals and two wagons drawn by oxen, a total of 14 oxen in all. He traveled by the route that would later be followed by the Mullen Road, up the Clark Fork and Little Blackfoot Rivers and over Mullen Pass. Major Owen left his wagons and oxen at the Sun River rather than take them all the way into Fort Benton. And he probably did this to to provide them with good grazing and water. Owen borrowed two wagons and teams of oxen to transport his Fort Benton purchases back to the Sun River. On the way to the Sun River, the party was struck with an incredibly fierce late September snowstorm, and they were forced to abandon their borrowed wagons and turn the oxen loose to fend for themselves on the prairies north of the river. Here's Owen's journal entry for September 20, 1855. It was written later. Our position was no longer tenable. What were we to do? Nothing but the wind to shape our course by. Howard was certain he could strike a Sun River coulee, by which, by following down, was certain to bring us to the river. And here's Owen's journal entry for the next day. Storm, still raging. We had passed a miserable night in a small bunch of willows. I never closed my eyes from fear of freezing. Then they continued to try to reach the river. My legs commenced to fail about noon, but there was no wood to camp by. So we had to continue on, the snow growing deeper, the nearer we approached the river. The cottonwoods which lined the stream came in view a little before sunset. We soon reached the river and found a large cottonwood log to make our fire by. The storm abated after four days. Sadly, when Owen returned to the borrowed wagons he had abandoned on the prairie, north of the Sun River, he found that two young pigs and some fowl that he had received as gifts at Fort Benton had not survived the storm. The Major's party was eventually able to find all of the borrowed oxen and 11 of his 14 oxen of his own. He managed to get 10 of his oxen yoked to his larger wagon and to load that wagon from the borrowed wagons. Owen feared that his oxen could not manage both of his wagons on the Muddy Trail home, so he sent a smaller wagon with some of the goods back to (coughs) Fort Benton with the borrowed wagons and oxen. Major Owen attempted to trail up and over Mullen Pass with a fully loaded wagon that he estimated carried 3,500 pounds. Now just for perspective, uh, 3,500 pounds is the weight of two 1965 Volkswagen Beetles. (laughs) His task was made more arduous because the ground was slippery from the melting snow. In difficult stretches, Owen's party had to repeatedly unload the wagon transport the goods a short distance using the pack animals and then bring up the wagon to be reloaded. After the Major's party crossed the summit of Mullen Pass, that they found that the trail was under deep snow. Owens' journal entry from October 11, 1855. Jim reports things gloomy enough ahead, thinks it doubtful whether we can get the wagon down on the Little Blackfoot. In passing a sidling place, the wagon took a shear and turned over three times before stopping. When his party finally reached the Little Blackfoot, Owen sent a messenger to his fort instructing that additional pack animals should be brought back to transport his goods. The wagon was cached on the Little Blackfoot and the jaded oxen were gently herded back to Fort Owen. Here's Major Owen's journal entry for October 21st, 1855. This is after he had returned safely to Fort Owen. Pleasant. Opened the packs and put the property all away. Sent the animals above to the general wintering ground. The animal I rode home died. In its early years business was slow at Fort Owen and there was also danger from Blackfeet raiding parties in the valley. In 1853, Fort Owen did only $517 worth of trade. And in the early summer of that year, Major Owen and his party actually abandoned Fort Owen for a short time because of the dangers from the Blackfeet and because of poor business prospects. In The fall of 1853, Lieutenant John Mullen, and here I want you to notice that he and Owen had the same hairdresser. Lieutenant John Mullen, in command of the Eastern Unit of the Stevens Railroad Survey, established cantonment stevens on the east side of the Bitterroot Valley, about 12 miles south of Fort Owen. That's near the location of today's Corvallis, Montana. Lieutenant Mullen was charged to explore the areas north and south of the Bitterroot Valley, to make meteorological observations during the winter of 1853-54, and to learn about the local Indians. 1854 was a more successful year at the Fort Owen Trading Post, with more than $2,500 of business conducted. Lieutenant Mullen's expenditures alone accounted for more than half of this amount, and other members of Mullen's command also had accounts at the Fort Owen Trading Post. The presence of American soldiers in the Bitterroot also enhanced the security of Fort Owen from the Blackfeet. Now, Owen and Lieutenant Mullen frequently visited back and forth between the fort and Cantonment Stevens. From his journal entries, it's evident that Major Owen had a deep fondness and respect for Lieutenant Mullen. The railroad survey complete, Lieutenant Mullen and his men left the Bitterroot Valley in the late summer of 1854. Major Owen's journal entry for August 7, 1854. I learned from Mr. H. that Lt. Mullen is to abandon his post in the Bitterroot Valley. I regret the departure of Lt. Mullen, for I found him a high-toned gentleman with pleasing manners. Construction of the military road from Fort Walla Walla to Fort Benton began in earnest in the spring of 1859, under the command of John Owen's old friend, Lt. John Mullen. Initial construction began on the west, and the construction party went into a somewhat miserable winter quarters in early December at Cantonment, Jordan. That was on the St. Regis River, 110 miles northwest of Fort Owen. Through the winter, supplies were sent to Cantonment, Jordan from Fort Owen, and some of Mullen's men wintered at Fort Owen. Because conditions at Cantonment, Jordan were unsuitable for keeping horses, oxen, and mules alive through the winter, Most of the construction crew's stock was sent to winter in the Bitterroot Valley. The 1860 construction season brought the Mullen Military Road all the way to Fort Benton, although two more construction seasons would be necessary to completely finish the road. Initially, the completion of the Mullen Road was a boon to Major Owen because it increased his ease of travel through the mountains. However, the building of the Mullen Road spelled the beginning of the decline of Fort Owen Trading Post because it erased Owen's splendid isolation in his mountain kingdom and brought in nearby competitors where previously there had been none. In 1860, Frank Warden and his partner Christopher Higgins opened a trading post at Hellgate some 30 miles north of Fort Owen This is the old building in about 1900. Uh, This is where the Mullen Road crossed the trail from the Bitterroot to the Jocko Valley. Higgins had first come into the country in 1853 as the wagon master for the Stevens Railroad Survey. In 1864, Warden and Higgins moved their enterprise five miles east to the present location of Missoula. Although Warden and Company was in direct competition with the Fort Owen Trading Post, Major Owen maintained very cordial relationship with both Warden and Higgins. In the 1860s there was an influx of farmers settling in the Bitterroot so that Major Owen had a big new commercial gristmill constructed to grind their wheat into flour. The gristmill had a 750 foot long wooden flume leading up to it to elevate the waters of Mill Creek high enough to power the overshot water wheel. Profits from selling vegetables, potatoes, and flour to the mining camps also helped to offset the decline in profits in the trading post, resulting from increasing competition in the area. In early 1866, Major Owen had a falling out with his longtime employee, friend and heir, Thomas Harris. Owen believed that Harris had misappropriated livestock and equipment of the fort when he was in charge during one of Owen's long absences. The Major severed relations with Harris and even successfully sued him for the return of some horses. The 1868 death of Owen's beloved wife, Nancy, was no doubt very difficult for him. By 1870, Major Owen had incurred substantial debt and was himself beginning to fail mentally possibly because of his long-term indulgence in strong drink. (laughs) To help settle the Major's large debts, the Sheriff was ordered to dispose of Fort Owen and it was sold in one piece to Washington J. McCormick on December 30, 1872. At the time of the Sheriff's sale, Owen had been hospitalized in Helena for dementia for more than a year. He remained hospitalized in Helena Until February 1877, when he was escorted by a friend to Philadelphia and placed in the care of his relatives. John Owen died July 12, 1889, at the age of 71. His tenure at Fort Owen had been about 20 years. Owen's fort survived him for a time. Adobe bricks have the major advantage of being fireproof. But even in a relatively dry climate, like the Bitterroot, they will quickly melt, if not constantly tended, to keep them roofed or capped. The fort that the Major had built quickly began to go back to its original state of being, Earth. The first casualty of this process was the perimeter wall, followed by the buildings. Imposing bastions collapsed one after the other. Then the west barracks, so that by the early 20th century, only the east barracks remained standing. The decrepit remains of the fort were purchased by the Stevensville Historical Society in 1937. Steps were taken at that time to stabilize and uh, preserve the remaining barracks. In 1956, Fort Owen was donated to the state of Montana, and the one-acre site became a state monument. It's now a state park. In 1957, the walls of the East Barracks were partially rebuilt using the more stable Portland cement blocks. From 1957 through 1980, the University of Montana carried out a series of archaeological digs at Fort Owen, and my father worked on one of those digs. The University crews excavated the foundations of the buildings and the walls of the fort. They also excavated the root house and the well so that today the remains of the subterranean structures are visible to the visitor. Fort Owen, although incomplete, (coughs) remains today an impressive relic of the very early days of white habitation in what's now western Montana. The next time you're in Stevensville, stop at Fort Owen State Park and explore what remains of the refuge Major Owen built in the wilderness. Thank you. (laughs) Gracias.